You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York. A community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. All right, Ian told you all to sit down. Apparently when you're 40, you can just exert authority wherever you want. Why don't we all stand back up for a moment as we read today's gospel reading. Today is Good Shepherd Sunday, and we have a word for our children, and I want you to know right from the gates, so I don't forget to say it later, if you have children that are home and still under your influence, this is for you. If you have children, but they are grown and out of the house, and so that direct influence, that direct authority has sort of ended, but you still have influence in their life, this is for you. And if you are a teacher, if you work with children, if you go to a church that has children in it, which is you right now, all of this is for you. And so I want everybody to let the Spirit speak to them this morning about this. We pick up with Mary and Joseph just after Jesus was born in Luke chapter 2. And when they had performed everything, everybody say everything, according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Twelve years later, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year, say every At the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. We always think Jesus is in the most familiar things, and he never is. Just saw that just now when I was reading. So I've, I've now been distracted. Here we are. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Jesus is like, uh, you left me. What do you mean, what did I do to you? You left me here and didn't realize for three days that you've left me here. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. Wait for it. That is coming at the end of this sermon, but it is important. They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Holy Spirit, we pray that this sermon would not begin and end today, but I pray that this sermon would begin today and would be cultivated by you for many, many years to come. Speak to us, make it easy to receive this word in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and everybody said, amen. You may be seated this morning. In The Easter weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, you would fully expect 
God to speak to you on Friday, Good Friday, or Easter Sunday. You wouldn't expect God to speak to you on what is known as Holy Saturday because God is not supposed to speak on Holy Saturday. He's supposed to be lying, resting, like I should have been doing with my foot. But like Jesus, we don't rest very well. I've been like Jesus. Granted, I'm more injured and he was less injured because he's God. Same thing. Don't worry about it. Jesus, if you follow any lectionaries, there is no gospel lectionary on Holy Saturday. It's the only day of the church year where you don't read the gospel because God is sleeping in the tomb. I came to church on Holy Saturday and stood in the parking lot and watched 30-plus kids, most of whom go to this church, run around our parking lot, and I had a panic attack. I had the same feeling for a moment, and I'm not lying, and I'm not being dramatic because I'm not a dramatic person. I'm very even-keeled. Iris, did you hear that laugh? My goodness gracious. (laughs) Yeah, right, liar. I stood there and had the same feeling that I had when the doctors handed me Sophia for the first time. The feeling of, I cannot do this. This gift is far beyond my ability to obey and do what is right. Has any parent ever felt this way before where you're like, whoa, together we cannot do this. We need people to help. That's how I felt when I saw our kids. Because the Spirit immediately spoke to me on Holy Saturday in a parking lot during an Easter egg hunt. And Elder Bill, the Holy Spirit said, some churches will blow up because their pastor or their worship leader got popular. But I don't want your church to blow up. I want your church to grow slowly. I don't want you to grow because a pastor or a worship leader got popular. How many know John and Steph should be popular? Amen? God does not want us to grow because somebody got popular. God wants us to grow Because the people in the church are bearing the fruit of the Spirit for the life of the world, and we are happening to the world like Jesus is happening to the world. When a church blows up, it is seen time and time again, the church becomes bigger than the virtue of the church itself, and something inevitably devastating happens. And I'm not just saying that because we have a regular-sized church. I'm saying you can never ask God for a gift bigger than the faith you have to receive it. That's why in Acts, when the church began to grow, it says that the church grew in faith and in numbers, and that order is everything. The numbers cannot grow faster than the faith because you won't be able to shepherd and pastor that church well if the faith isn't bigger than the numbers. When I, in 2013, when I was working at a daycare center as an event planner, they called me Mr. Bill for many years of my life and always made me read children's books to the kids constantly. Apparently, I was fun back then, right? Amen, little kids? 
I'm standing in the break room in 2013 wondering if, this is the thought I had, wondering if I was ever going to finally walk in my destiny and my purpose. Have you ever asked yourself this before? When am I going to step into the destiny and the purpose that God's called me to? And God shocked me and blessed me with an answer and said, you have it all wrong. I want you to know right now, I want you all to look at me. If you're at home, put your coffee down for a second, put the Pop-Tart down, and look at me. Yes, I'm talking to you. Look at me. I am not standing in my calling, my purpose, or my destiny right now. What you're seeing is the location where my purpose, calling, and destiny is executed. But this isn't my calling, purpose, and destiny because that means if it ever got lost, I would lose my calling, purpose, and destiny. This is going to be embarrassingly simple and somebody's going to get mad at me for saying this. And if you get mad at me for saying this, honest to God, I wrestled with it too. It's definitely your ego because we want this to be more grand than it is. But hear me out. Everybody's purpose, calling, and destiny is to live the life of Jesus to the world. Jesus is your calling, Jesus is your purpose, and Jesus is your destiny. All the other places in your life, whether you're at the best job or the worst job, a ministry job or a job where nobody sees you, all that is is the location where your calling, purpose, and destiny happens. Every day of your life, you get to live in your calling, purpose, and destiny because your calling is Jesus. Your purpose is Jesus. Your destiny is Jesus. And the enemy has us thinking in America with American values that our calling, purpose, and destiny has to be something that our country would call amazing, but it's something that the kingdom of God calls amazing and everything in the secular world overlooks. Jesus is your calling. Jesus is your purpose. Jesus is your destiny. And wherever you are, whenever you are, however you are, is the place where you are supposed to live that calling, purpose, and destiny. I just need to get out of this job. I just need to get educated. I just need to have a family. I just need to have a spouse. I just need, I just need, I just need, I just need. That is the laughing voice of Satan trying to get you not to realize you're already walking in it. It's already yours. You're living, breathing every day of your life and you're calling purpose and destiny because it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. All I am in right now is one very unique, very cool, very real place to live it out. But if I lost all of this tomorrow, I could still live my, my calling, my purpose, and my destiny. Because it's not what I do and it's not what I am, it's who I'm becoming. I say all of that to say, one of the locations as a church where we need to live out this calling, this purpose, and this destiny is with our children. God told me in 2013 that my execution of my ministry is going to be a gardening one. It's going to be slow And it's going to be cultivating. And what I saw in the parking lot on the Saturday before Easter, the in-between day of the year, suspended between the twin towers of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, what I saw was the potential of our church to be a thriving place in 15 years. 
if we learn to make this place a greenhouse for our children where they can grow and flourish in a safe way. There isn't anything more important in the world than living in a way that allows children to flourish safely. Has anybody ever prayed, Lord, put a hedge of protection around my children? Has anybody ever prayed this before? Let me tell you what God's answer to that question is. I have already created a hedge of protection for your children, and it's you. You are the hedge of protection that you're praying for. Your life is the hedge of protection. Your church is the hedge of protection. Your spiritual walk with Christ is the hedge of protection. We are the hedge of protection that God is putting around our children. We need to trim those hedges. We need to cultivate those hedges. We need to keep them healthy. Amen? I became the youth pastor of this church before I became the assistant pastor, before I became the senior pastor. I was working at a daycare center, and I became the youth pastor before I became anything else in this building. And here's the thing. I didn't know then what I know now, that God's fingerprints were geniusly and full of wisdom all over parts of my life that I thought and felt were meaningless at the time. I want you to know right now, I'm going to preach until 4 o'clock. I want you to know right now that your moment will never be understood by you until you've left the moment and look back. You might have moments where you feel like my life is worthless. You might have moments where you feel like it's purposeless. You might have moments where you don't understand what's happening. And I'm telling you, do not define your moment by how you feel in that moment. You need to leave that moment for a few moments and turn around and say, oh my goodness, I had no idea what he was doing. But now, now it makes sense. This is the life of Mary. Mary didn't understand these things. But when the story was over, she understood everything. You're not defined by how you feel in your moment. Let moments go by. What God was doing for me by placing me in a daycare center and by allowing me to be the youth pastor, God gave me this text that I just read in 2013. And I preached it to the parents in 2013 as a youth pastor. It was my vision for our youth group. We changed the name of the youth group from core to advance, and I preached this sermon. And I, all I was able to do was give three things that Jesus was doing at age 12. Why? Because we wonder, what should our kids look like at, at, their, at their transitional years of their life? Well, God shows us what God was like when he was 12. God shows us what it's like when God is 12. Oh, we should be devouring this story. I'm not even going to do it justice. We should, be dev we should have, never highlight in your Bible. I'll never talk to you again. I was just kidding about highlight. You should get a, a finely tuned micron pen and underline gently in your, if you highlight your Bible, please leave this church and go, go, go someplace else. I can't, if I hear, well, first of all, let me just rephrase everything. If you have a Bible right now in your lap, I'll let you highlight in it because you're not using your phone. So, fine. I have tremendous ADD, so just let me, let me go down my rabbit trails. I'll come back. I'll, I leave breadcrumbs. I'll find my way back. This story spoke to me lightly about our children, but now that I have moved from the youth pastor to the, senior pa uh, to the, to the assistant pastor to the senior pastor, I'm now going to preach what I preached seven, eight years ago 
differently because this actually has more to do with us than it does to our children because we are the space that our children can either grow in healthy or not. So the question is, when Mary and Joseph find Jesus in the temple, and let me say, Mary and Joseph, Mary gets a bad rap because she leaves Jesus in the temple. But the church teaches something very different over its years. They don't teach that Mary made a mistake leaving Jesus in the temple. They teach that Mary knew that she had such an exceptional exceptional child that she wasn't a helicopter parent. She didn't control Jesus. She held him loosely, which is why she was able to lose him. But when she lost him, she lost him in the right place. When you try and control every inch of your children's life, you will lose them in the wrong place. When you hold them loosely before the Lord, you will lose them also, but you'll lose them in the right place. Either way, you're going to lose your children. You're going to lose them in the temple or you're going to lose them in the world, but you're going to lose them someplace. Mary lost Jesus when he was 12. Mary lost Jesus when he was 33. And then Mary lost Jesus when he ascended to heaven. She keeps losing Jesus because she keeps holding him lightly, but she keeps having a closer relationship with him every time. My God. It's the most incredible story of all time. She loses him in the temple. Why does she lose him in the temple? Because she's liturgical, everybody's favorite word. She's liturgical. Why is she liturgical? Because she goes to the temple every Passover, every day of atonement, every time they say to go, Mary, leave room for the Holy Spirit. Why are you following such a tight liturgy? Because the Holy Spirit shows up spontaneously in the midst of planned liturgies. Everybody know Acts chapter 2? When the day of had fully come, and then what's the S word? Suddenly, when the day of had come, suddenly, when the day of had come, the Holy Spirit waited until a liturgical feast day to show up, and then there was spontaneity. But there's only spontaneity when there's commitment to a rhythm. Mary and Joseph for 12 years took Jesus to the temple. And for 12 years, nothing was recorded that they heard anything from God. And then on a random trip to the temple, on a random planned out day that could have been dry and dead and, oh my gosh, all of a sudden, they get another glimpse out of nowhere into who this child is. You want to know more about our children? Our children need us to have a consistent, never-ending, unyielding approach to worship. And when we do, for most of the time, we won't hear God say something. But that day will come when we are committed to a flow of worship, where we go to church on Sunday, where we press in, where we open our Bible during the week, when we are committed to a consistent flow of worship, all of a sudden we will hear God say what he's always saying to us, and he'll show us things about our children. Three things Jesus was doing when Mary found him. And these are three things that I want us to pray over our children. The first one is embarrassingly obvious. Jesus was in the temple. May our children be in the temple. (laughs) 
Have you ever lost a 12-year-old? I'm pretty sure when you find younger kids and they realize mom and dad can't see me right now, they don't go to church. They go to the closet. They get candy. They do crazy things. There's stories of me doing, destroying a room with powder. My cousin Brett and I, just, my mom was like, why aren't they making any noise? And they come up, and we had shaken powder all over the place. Because I love Christmas, and it snowed. And I thought it was funny, but now as a parent, I would, uh, yeah, I would have gotten in trouble. Jesus, the overachiever that he is, goes to church. (laughs) He waits for his parents to find him in church. But what does this mean? This means that God at 12 was obsessed with the temple. Now, when I was the youth pastor, all I said to the parents was, pray that your kids would be obsessed with church. But now that I have this lane that I'm in, I realize that that prayer is a little bit deficient because the only way our kids should ever be obsessed with the temple is if we are creating an atmosphere worthy of being obsessed over. Are we showing up and being passionate and open and prayerful and excited? When we talk about the church during the week, are we talking about it like we're excited, like we need it, like it's food that's going to taste so good? Are we allowing busyness to cramp and cynicize us and be cynical to the church that we're going to? Are we providing a temple worthy of our children obsessing over it? That's actually not on them. We have no right to tell our children to love church if we're not providing a church that's worthy of love. Is it all about just downloading information into them and getting them to say the right answers so we can fake ourselves out into thinking they have a healthy spiritual life? Or is it about calling them up into a colorful, fruitful form of worship that is, exists in our home, that exists in our church, that is more enticing and more fruitful and more powerful than every other liturgy they're going to experience out there? Here's something we need to know. Jesus was in the temple. And then, prior to that, Mary was a temple for Jesus. She carried him in her body. Her womb became the Holy of Holies and carried the Ark of the Covenant himself in it. If you're getting nervous about how much I'm talking about Mary, Relax. Everybody go like this. Put the chill pill in your hand. Hold your water. Take the chill pill. Chill out. She held the Ark of the Covenant. She held the manna. She held the rod that budded in her womb. She was a temple for the temple before the temple became a temple for her. So Jesus was in the physical building. Are we creating an atmosphere? Not a gimmicky atmosphere that rivals a club, but an atmosphere that calls to the soul of our children. But then, are we being temples for our children at home? Are we holding them in a safe space? Ian said, I had brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers. Listen, if you don't have children, understand something. I could name Matt and Dave and Dan 
three people that when I came to this church, they did not have children, but they sure enough raised me in this house. They raised me to be the man that I am. They raised me in this house. They showed me a better way than the way I was going. This message is for you if you go to this church because your influence, like Ian just said, like those guys for me, parented me. But then Jesus, this is, mom and dad, you need to hear this. Jesus became the temple. So one, yes, we want our kids to be obsessed with the temple, the physical building. Two, we have to be a temple for them and bear the presence of God for them in their life. But then, three, we need to realize that they are a temple bearing the presence of God to us. Dignify your children by being willing to receive God's presence from them. Do not destroy their personhood by making them think at a young age they have nothing to offer until they get older. This is a temple. You're a temple. They are a temple. And we receive God together that way. If you cannot receive the presence of God, well, my children have moved out and they're not saved, then you know more than they know about what is in them. And so you can honor them and learn from them and see them in a way that they can't even see themselves. They're a temple and they don't even know it. They house the creative energy of God and they don't even know it. You can show it to them by being impacted by it, and they don't even know they're doing that to you. I want to preach on that forever, but I'll move on to point two. I promise you right now, I have, there's so much more to say. We'll say it in due course, but there's crazier things to say. This is the easiest part so far. Point two, Jesus was in the temple, and then what was he doing in the temple? He was listening He was asking questions. So may our children be in the temple, and may our children be disciples. May our children be in the temple, and may our children be disciples. Salem, hear me. When Mary and Joseph found Jesus, what was he doing? He was listening, and he was asking questions. He was listening, and he was asking questions. What does that mean? That means that Jesus, God... God himself had taken the posture of a learner. We want our kids to learn. We want them to listen. We want them to ask questions. But here's the other angle. Is what they're hearing in here and at home worthy of them listening and asking questions? I know from my home, I'll be the sinful pastor, just so everybody knows. It's not always G at my home. This convicts me as I'm saying it to you. Desire ye not to be teachers, the Bible says. This convicts me as I'm saying it to you. I need to recommit myself to making sure that if that beautiful little girl right there, or little Theo, still yet unborn, come on somebody. (laughs) Little Theodore Joseph D'Angeriano. TD, touchdown. I hope he plays football. (laughs) He's listening. She's listening. Should they be hearing what they're hearing? 
Is it healthy? If they ask questions, listen to me. Do we answer the question to teach? Or do we answer the question to end the conversation so we can get back to what we were doing? He was listening and he was asking questions. If our children are listening and if our children are asking questions, are they hearing that which is going to cause them to thrive? Or are they hearing something altogether worse? But then he was doing a third thing. He was listening, he was asking questions, and then it says, and they were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Twelve-year-old Jesus listened, twelve-year-old Jesus asked questions, and twelve-year-old Jesus gave answers. Mom and dad, Salem brothers and sisters, teachers of children on any level, you can teach children by letting them teach you. If we live like we are called merely to teach our kids and they have nothing to teach us, we will never teach them that they have dignity and humanity in their little flesh and blood. You remove someone's dignity when you make them solely dependent on you as if they have nothing to offer you. We have to teach our children. And one of the ways we teach them is we dignify them by learning from them. They were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And even when Jesus grew up, he's walking to Jerusalem and his egotistical disciples are having a conversation about who's the greatest. And when he gets to his home, the Bible says that Jesus said to them, what were you discussing on the way? So look what Jesus just did. He heard the conversation the whole way. He heard everything they were saying. He listened. Then when he got home, he said, what were you discussing? He asked questions. Then after they gave him the worst answer of all time, he said, the greatest will be the least. Those with authority will really be those who serve. He listened. He asked questions. And he gave answers. Because he learned to do that as a child. Because Mary and Joseph dignified him by letting him, by teaching him, and by also letting him teach them. And Jesus grew up. Isn't it funny that at the crucial moment of Mary's life, she says, be it unto me according to thy word? And at the crucial moment of Jesus' life, he says, nevertheless, not my will, thy will be done. He was just taken after his mother. He was just taking after his mom. He learned because she learned, because they learned, because together they're the temple. And finally, let me hear you all hold your breath for a second. Breathe, breathe, breathe. May our children be obedient. We got a little bit to talk about here, Salem. Just please do me one favor. Can you please say, Pastor Bill? Let me hear you say it, Pastor Bill. We love you. Please remember you just said that. (laughs) 
Mm. I, I'm never going to say, I'm scared. You'll throw a brick at me. I see. I'm not even trying to play around with you. You can, you can repeat me all you want. <laughs> obedience. Gosh, we got to talk about obedience for a second. John, we're going to talk about obedience in the home again. All right. John left in the first service while I was talking about this. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus went home and was obedient to his parents. Now, who gets to be in authority? Write this down. Authority is not rooted in nature. I'll say it in a way that I know we can all agree. Having lighter skin does not give you more authority, and having darker skin does not give you less authority. Amen? Amen? We live in a world where that is totally flipped and abused. But as long as we agree about the first part that you all just clap for, I set you up for something. I've tricked you. You have now fallen into my web of trickery. Authority is not rooted in nature. Because that would mean that some people's nature inherently are more valuable than other people's nature. Because if you, whatever word you want to use, submission, subordinate, superior, inferior, whatever word you want to use, it's all the same thing. If authority is not rooted in nature, then that also means, along with the color of our skin, it also means that women are not inherently inferior to men. So husbands, you do not have more authority in your home than your wife does. It's a misunderstanding and a horrific misunderstanding of what Paul was actually talking about. Because Paul prefaces everything he says about the home with husbands and wives submit one to another. Your gender does not give you more authority or less authority. If we don't believe this, we can have a little midweek study where I'll let everybody yell at me. And I just want to say, if you ever hear authority talk like this, and you get angry because you think you have authority that your pastor is taking away from you, might I suggest you need to spend some time at the altar? Because people who are afraid of losing authority do not understand that Jesus said this, in the, with the Gentiles, they exercise authority by lording it over each other. The biggest and the baddest and the most influential are the ones who have the authority. And Jesus says, let it not be so among you, but be the servant of all. In the kingdom of God, authority does not come with a command, it comes with a towel. Authority does not come with a throne, it comes with a cross. Yes, we should walk in authority. Mom and dad, you should walk in authority. I should walk in authority, but only if that authority is conducive for the flourishing of other people. Not their subordination, but their flourishing. What does it say about Jesus after he was submissive? 
And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. I grew up hearing about the principle of authority, which to me is one of the worst doctrines ever. Because the principle of authority says this, submit to your authorities, and even if they're wrong, you keep submitting and God will bless you. Do you understand what a license for abuse that has been over the years? The authority just gets to be wrong. Abuse everybody, and the subordinates just have to stay under the abuse because hopefully God blesses me because I'm getting my face kicked in on a regular basis or emotionally manipulated or worse, killed. Have you ever heard, give to your church, and don't, it doesn't matter what your church does with the money you just give? That's terrible. That's terrible. I was in fundraising for a very long time. And we didn't just want other companies to give our company money. We needed to research that company and see what they were really involved in before we received anything from them. You need to know that your church isn't hurting people with its money isn't stealing, isn't robbing the community, isn't involved in dark and shady things, which unfortunately does happen. And if you find those things out, you shouldn't perpetuate it by continuing to give. You don't honor the abuser by continuing to offer to them. Our children should obey us because we're creating an environment conducive to their flourishing. If they're getting abused... No, they shouldn't subject themselves to abuse. Raise your hand if you think children should subject themselves to abuse. Nobody. So what kind of authorities are we being? Are we being authorities that create safe space for the flourishing of our children? Mary was not perfect. But Mary is the perfect example of how an imperfect person carries God. Something about Mary and Joseph's home allowed Jesus, allowed God to be submissive to them. And they actually allowed God to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor. That's a healthy place. God grew in Mary's home. So what should our authority look like? I will close with this, and I say I will close very generously with myself. <laughs> what should our authority look like? Today is Good Shepherd Sunday. Mom and Dad, I'm speaking to you right now. I'm speaking to you right now, and I want you to hear this. If you're watching from home, lean in. Lean in right now. As we close with this, we are going to read the most popular psalm in the entire Bible, and I want you to hear it entirely differently than you've ever heard it before. This is the character of the good shepherd that we're supposed to submit to. This is the character of what every authority should be like. This is the kind of authority that when you submit to it, it doesn't bring fatality, it brings life. Amen? Listen to this. This is the kind of church we should be. These are the kinds of people we should be. These are the kinds of parents we should be. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He, he, restore, 
Sorry, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. What is he saying here? The psalm is opening with the will of the good shepherd. And what is the will of the good shepherd? To lead you over here to where there's green pastures, still waters, righteousness. Okay? Mom and dad, we should will to lead our children to where there are green pastures, still waters, and righteousness, which means we should know where there are green pastures, still waters, and righteousness. Well, pastor, my children are no longer in the home. Well, then do this. Now that you can't lead them anymore, be the green pastures, the still waters, and bring calm to their soul, not agitation. Bring peace to their soul, not agitation. If your children are not saved, go be green pastures, but hear me out, and if you're old school, you'll get this. But don't let your offering of green pastures be some scheme to try to get them saved in some sort of play-action fake. Their kids know what you're trying to do when you do that. Just love them for who they are, not for who you hope they be. Just love them for who they are today. Give them healthy food. Give them a quiet soul. Give them, show them, be paths of righteousness for them. Because watch this. That's the will of the good shepherd. That should be the will of our life. But look what David says next. Everybody's probably, you've memorized this verse. The good shepherd is leading me to green pastures, still waters. And then it says, yet, even though I walk this way, through the valley of the shadow of death. He wanted me over there, but even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even though I've said no to his green pastures, I've said no to his waters of rest, I've said no to his righteousness, and I've ended up in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because he's not over there telling me I told you so. He's with me here. He's with me here. He doesn't stand on the top of the mountain and say, I told you, dummy, not to hang out with those friends. I told you not to do that. I told you to go to church. Now you're in the valley. Climb back up here. That is not what the good shepherd does. He wants you here, but when you go here, he goes here with you. My brother Frank told me this yesterday. Be with your kids in the dark so when the lights finally come on, they know you've been there all along. Yes. He leads me there, but even when I go this way, he doesn't stay over there saying you should come back. He travels through the darkness. He travels through thorns. He travels through the lashes on his back, the holes in his hands, the scars in his side. He travels through all of it to get you no matter where you go. It's not done. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Pastor, are you saying we're not allowed to discipline our children? No. His rod and his staff, yes, Hebrews 4 or 10, he, he, he chastises the sons he loves. But what does his anger do? It comforts me. 
It doesn't condemn me, make me feel less than, threaten me with relationship ending. It comforts me. So when we do discipline our children, may it not only teach them a lesson, but may it let them know that nothing they could do could ever sever this relationship. What comforts them is not the lack of discipline. What comforts children is the presence of discipline with the knowledge that the relationship is not on the line. We have to know this. We have to know this. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Don't hang out. We had some fun in the first service because there's some, some parents with some teenagers that just hanging out with, quote, unquote, the wrong crowd. In this, in this psalm, David goes to where he shouldn't go, to where his enemies are. I remember, just remembering this now, I remember I was doing some stupid stuff with one particular friend. I was probably 16 or 17. And my dad said, if I find out that you do this one more time, basically I'm Pentecostal and you're going to die. And I'm going to quote Bible verses while I kill you. (laughs) I go to my friend's house a few weeks later. We do things we shouldn't do. My parents think I'm at somebody else's house. I get in my car to leave and my car won't start. God pulled my spark plug out. Hey, Dad, can you come get me? Yeah, sure, where are you? I'm at Chris's house. Click. He picks me up, opens the hood, puts the spark plug back on. To this day, I do not know how that thing, Jesus was just like, clink. I didn't open the hood. At least I didn't think we did. Maybe we didn't. Anyway, hold it. He says, get in my car. He takes me to a diner. Talks with me about the New York Mets the entire time. Drives me back to my car. He said, are you okay? I said, I'm okay. I said, I think I need to change some things. He said, I was hoping you would get there. He prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He anointed my head with oil. He empowered me to realize through sitting at a table that I needed help. He killed me. But he killed me the way Jesus kills people. He kills the enemy in you so that all is left is you without the enemy attacking you. And with this somber moment, Let me preach one more point. Surely goodness and mercy shall, shall what? Again, for the kids. Are we supposed to follow Jesus? Sophia, are we supposed to follow Jesus? Okay. You saw what just happened? She gave the right answer, and then the minute she knew, where'd she get this theatrics from? We're supposed to follow Jesus, which means he's supposed to be in front of us. We're supposed to be behind him. But this says goodness and mercy will. 
So this means that I'm following goodness and mercy, but there's points in my life where I turn from goodness and mercy, and I go my own way. And I turn around, and I start walking the wrong way, and I leave goodness and mercy behind me. What does goodness and mercy do? Goodness and mercy turns around and follows me down the wrong road, and it will follow me as long as it takes to overcome me. Because what does David say? Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my but I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Goodness and mercy will track me down and leap over me to my forever to make sure that I'm never without it. If this scares you, it should scare you. I am saying what you think I'm saying. Unconditional love will never stop pursuing you until it has everything it ever wanted, which is you. You cannot walk away from Jesus. You can deny him. You can say no to him. You can turn around. You can walk the wrong way your whole life. And the minute you stop and turn around, you bump right into Jesus because goodness and mercy will follow you when you should have been following it. Goodness and mercy will not stop following you until you can say, I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Mom and dad, brothers and sisters in Christ, when people start going the wrong way, follow. Let's be the kind of church. Let's be the kinds of friends. Let's be the kinds of parents that follow and follow and follow and never stop following so that when our kids turn around, bang, we're right there. And maybe God will give us the grace to have our goodness and mercy have more endurance than their sin. Maybe we'll pass them on the track. Maybe we'll pass them on the marathon and goodness and mercy will get out in front of our kids and we'll show you we're alpha and omega. You can't get a Away from us, this goodness and mercy will last. Let's be those kinds of parents. It doesn't matter what your kids think about you today. It matters when they look back on life. I want our kids to say, my parents pursued me forever. Goodness and mercy didn't stop. Not judgment and condemnation. Not cynicism and opinions, goodness and mercy. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Everybody take your Eucharist cup. I want to riff off of a point that my wife made. How good was Jacqueline's sermon last week? Oh my goodness gracious. I'm pretty sure Jesus injured my foot. I don't think it had anything to do with me not listening to the doctor. Jacqueline last week said, we can't just take something out of our hand. We have to replace it with something. I want everybody to close their eyes for a second. I want you to go back to the moment where Jesus says to Mary, didn't you know I'm supposed to be about my father's business? And Mary didn't understand this. Go back to Genesis. Joseph has some dreams. His brothers hear the dreams and attack, and attack him. His father hears the dreams. And it says that Jacob treasured these things in his heart. Mary treasured these things in her heart. Mom and dad. Not understanding your children is a treasure, not a curse. 
you don't have to walk around with the weight to clarify things for your kids. Treasure what you don't understand. Hold on to what you don't understand. Hold it close to what you don't understand. Let me make it beyond kids. If you're in your life and you don't understand your own life right now, if you're trying to fill your life with things because you're trying to bring clarity to yourself, take a play out of Mary's playbook. Don't be, don't have consternation because you don't understand your life or your feelings or who you are. Treasure the misunderstanding in your heart. It's a treasure. It's not a curse. We come from a tribe that has elevated answers to equate with competence. Mary, the patriarchs of our faith, Jacob, pondered misunderstandings in their hearts. Jesus himself said, the son doesn't know the day or hour of his own return. He ponders it and holds it in his heart. You don't have to know but treasure the moment that you're in. Treasure the seconds that you have breath in your lungs. Treasure the chance that you have to live a life worthy of your calling. What I want you to do as we pray for the, for the bread and the cup is I want you to offer to God your desire to control and replace that control with this meal. It's the meal that the good shepherd offers you. And he says, no matter what you do to me, this will always be my body offered for you. This will always be my blood spilled for you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would descend on this bread and this cup and make it for your people, the body and blood of Jesus, the good shepherd. Sanctify all of us that we would begin today to live a slow, cultivating life with who, whatever children are in our life in any capacity. We will be the temple for them. We will nurture them in discipleship. We will reveal to them how to be obedient so that they know we are safe places to be obedient. Thank you, God for obeying your parents so that we could learn to obey you. It almost feels uncomfortable to say that, but it is the gospel. Heavenly Father, as we get ready to partake, I pray that this sermon would grow like a young plant in our life, that it wouldn't just be another Sunday's sermon, but we would revisit this as food as we handle with care the children that you've put in our midst. These are the gifts of God for the people of God, the bread, the cup, and the children. Would you partake with me this morning? Holy Spirit, bless us as we go. And give us eyes to see and ears to hear the things that will cause our children to flourish. In your name we pray and everybody said.
Amen. Salem, I love you so much. Grace and peace. Have a wonderful week. Sign up for LTG groups. I love you. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.